Okay, so um, hopefully it will become clear why we did those couple of bits uh, in the meditation uh, in a minute. Um, so anyway, we've reached uh, the last in this series uh, of talks given by me uh, on just sitting. Um, or perhaps more correctly, uh, things that might get in the way of just sitting. I think that's how I've approached it. Um, uh, you may remember, those of you who've come and listened to any of the talks, uh, that the idea for this series came out of uh, some observations that I'd had uh, around the centre, uh, that people weren't doing this aspect of Sangharachita's uh, system of meditation. Um, and in fact, it sort of made me uh, have a think about how we even teach uh, meditation at the centre. Uh, and I'm certainly hoping that just sitting will be much more foregrounded uh, in future on beginner's, beginners courses. So um, we've got Sangharachita's system of meditation up here. And I uh, just wanted to say a little bit about it, just to remind us uh, for the last time. So the system of meditation is divided into four uh, stages uh, or developments. So we start off with the stage of integration uh, and awareness. Uh, and this is the first practice that we teach when people come along to, to Buddhism classes. Uh, it's the mindfulness of breathing. Um, and I suppose just to remind you that it's not just the mindfulness of breathing that helps us to develop this. Yeah? Obviously, any kind of mindfulness practice that we're doing uh, off the cushion, uh, for instance, and you could even include stuff like focusing uh, in that uh, as well. Remember, these, these are just principles. Um, we have got specific practices in the movement to practice, uh, to develop these stages. But I think it's a good idea not to get too, too kind of narrowly fixated on those practices. Yeah, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of ways that we can do the same thing. So integration and awareness is followed by the other stage of positive emotion. Yeah, so this is stages such as the metta bhavna. Uh, but it could also be kind of our practice of friendship uh, with other people. Uh, the practice of the positive precepts uh, even. It could even be puja. Uh, and other rituals as well. So these two stages here, they, they form um, what we'd call the samatha stage. And I'm going to explain a little bit more about what samatha means uh, in a minute. So in a way, they're the calming stage. They're the clearing the mind of unnecessary clutter. Yeah? And you'll notice that in between uh, these stages, there is a period of just sitting uh, as well. Um, and then we move on to the third stage, which, uh, as Tejananda quite rightly commented, it doesn't sound that promising, does it? Spiritual death. <laughs> yeah. So another way of looking at it is the stage of insight. I mean, in a way, if you get to this stage, you'll probably be, be quite kind of gung-ho about Buddhism and the whole idea of spiritual death will probably be quite appealing. Uh, but as perhaps as sort of newer people, uh, you know, whatever, it might sound a bit funny, spiritual death, yeah? In a way, what we can look at it as is we can look at it as the death of the limited self, yeah? A moving forward, a kind of a letting go of a habit perhaps that, you know, it, it's kept us down. Uh, it's, it's kept us limited. So in a way, this, this stage is rather like a kind of snake shedding its skin, uh, in a way, and becoming more. Uh, uh, you can look at it like that, more expanded kind of consciousness rather than death. Yeah? So I've put insight there as well. Again, it's followed by a period of just sitting. And the practices in the movement for this, there's, there's quite a few insight practices, uh, such as the six-element practice, uh, which some of you might have heard of, uh, the Nidana chain practice, the chain of the links of becoming, uh, and all sorts of things uh, as well. And uh, these practices, the insight practices, are becoming taught more and more uh, outside the order uh, as well these days, I've noticed. So the fourth stage is spiritual rebirth after another period of just sitting. And traditionally in the movement, this is the practice of sadhana or visualising the bodhisattva figures. But we, we can look at it, I think, this stage as the fruits of insight in a way. Insight occurs here. Who is the new being that is reborn uh, out of this insight? Yeah? So these, this is the system of meditation. And Sangha actually very, very clearly says that between each stage we should do a period uh, of just sitting. In fact, I mean, if you want to 
If you want to find out more about this, Sangha Achita has done a talk, which you can get hold of, I think, either downstairs or on free audio, free Buddhist audio. And it's called A System of Meditation. Uh, and in this, Sangha Achita says, uh, one must be careful that all this conscious effort, yeah, so what he's referring to here is these stages, where we're trying to do things, trying to develop mindfulness of breathing or metta. Yeah? All this conscious effort does not become too willed, yeah? even too willful. And in order to guard against this possibility, we can practice just sitting in between the other methods. A period of activity, then passivity. Activity, and then passivity. Taking hold of, letting go. Grasping, opening up. Action, non-action. In this way, we achieve a perfectly balanced practice of meditation. A perfectly balanced spiritual life. And in this way, the whole system of meditation becomes complete. Yeah. So there you go, you've heard it from the, as it were, horse's mouth. Yeah. This is why it's included uh, in the system of meditation. So, if just sitting is so important, well, why have I not sort of gone into it more uh, in my talks? Well, I think the answer is the same reason why Sangharachita hasn't spoken about it very much. If you look through his entire works, and we're talking millions upon millions of words, he says hardly anything about just sitting. And this is because... We should just sit. Yeah? And actually, if you start giving people instructions, they stop just sitting. And they start trying to do the instructions. Yeah? So in a way, it's, it's a very difficult practice to, to teach because you just catch it. In a way, you can give a few directives, as I've done, a few orientations, in, as it were, but then it's best to let go of it and just sit. Yeah? So there's often a few guidelines. You know, Just be with whatever's happening. If it all gets a bit alienated, come back to the heart. You know, there's a few, a few things that we can do, as it were. But actually, we should just be sitting. And this is what they do in the, in the Zen monasteries. I heard a story once where, because they get them in quite young uh, in the Zen monasteries, and they get these kind of six-year-olds and they just tell them to just sit there. And maybe when they're about 17 or 18, they give them further instructions. <laughs> so... So the idea is, is that you work it out for yourself. You catch it. You get it on your own, actually. But it takes a lot of faith to stick with it to that point. Yeah, we'll all be kind of sat there going, oh, am I doing it right? Oh, my mind's all over the place. Oh, should this be happening? We'll do this for a long, long time, and then it will settle one day, and we'll get it. And once we've got it, we know what just sitting is. Yeah? Uh, but until that point, it can be a little bit daunting. So it's a practice which requires a lot of faith, actually. A lot of willingness uh, to give it a go. So I felt it more important, really, to look at the things that can get in the way of the practice rather than trying to give you a detailed um, account of what you do because you just sit. So in the first talk, Beware Ideology, I looked at the need to learn to think for ourselves. Yeah? Um, because the just sitting in practice it involves a real sideways leap from how we think conventionally uh, in society. Yeah? It's a real sideways leap from the norms of culture. And we saw that many of our collective cultural views are based upon delusion. It's pretty clear, isn't it? You look in the world, you listen uh, to the news, watch the news. Yeah, a lot of our views are based upon delusion. Yeah? And yet they're so pervasive because everybody else seems to be doing them. Yeah? The majority of the population is doing them. Yeah? So we spoke about the need to test the implications of the Dharma for ourselves. Yeah? Our culture has its views, general views. The Dharma says, well, you know, actually these things are right for you. So, you know, we need to have a think about, well, which do we feel will allow us to grow and develop, yeah, to become the people we want to be? Do we want to take on these views willy-nilly from society, or do we want to test out the views of the Dharma, test out the Dharma, you know, and see which ones are leading us to a more rich life? So, in the context of tonight's talk, uh, we will see that even these dharmic views yeah, are provisional. Yeah? And they need to be let go of to attain perfect vision. Yeah? So, but how much more so, perhaps, some of the views out there in society yeah, that we just take on unconsciously? So, in the second talk, Doing Nothing is Hard Work, we extended the need, for this, uh, the need to think for ourselves into the area of activity uh, and work. 
And we looked at one of the most deep and destructive <coughs> ideologies in society, yeah, the Protestant work ethic. Ooh, sounds horrible, doesn't it? Sends shivers down my spine. Yeah, this compulsion to always be doing something, yeah, to be fixing something, yeah, to be justifying our existence through being a useful worker, etc., through achieving, through getting a pat on the back from our boss, you know, whatever it is that we're doing, yeah. And we saw that if we get caught up in sort of more neurotic activity, yeah, well, how could we possibly benefit from the just sitting practice, yeah? When our lives are a relentless doing, 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 how can we possibly value just letting go, just being, yeah, becoming receptive to our experience, yeah? It's the complete anathema of the Protestant work ethic. So we need to really, really look at this, yeah? And we even went so far as to say that unless your job is a real vocation, a skillful one that gives lots of gives you pleasure and benefits humanity in some way. Yeah. Um, if this isn't the case, then as a Buddhist, and we had sang a few quotes from Sangharachita just to back me up, so you don't think I can, I'm a complete loony. Yeah. It's okay to do as little as possible at work. Yeah. Go part time. Yeah. Devote more time. Earn as much money as you need. Devote more time to the Dharma, to enjoying life. Yeah, why not? And less times on, as Blake says, the cogs tyrannic. Yeah. So, last week in the Swamplands of the Soul, uh, we looked at society's general approach to suffering uh, and discomfort. Yeah, which is another thing that we can that can get in the way of us doing the just sitting practice, taking it seriously. Yeah, we saw that society tends to have a different view to Buddhism on suffering. Yeah? Society generally sees suffering as something to be avoided yeah? at all costs. Something that even that only happens to the weak yeah? or losers. Yeah? Suffering's for losers. <laughs> yeah? I mean, it might not be specific. I mean, some, some horrible people might say that at times. But there's some sort of emotional response to life where perhaps we think that. Certainly I've observed it a lot out there in society. If we hold these views in some way, if we hold them somewhere in our own emotional life, well, we'll find the just-sitting practice very difficult to remain engaged with, yeah? Because at times, when we slow down, it will be very, very pleasant to just sit, just to let go, to be with the fruits of our practice, yeah? But and also, at times, when we slow down, particularly if we spend a lot of our time, time on the run in life, doing, 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 yeah? Well... Sometimes some uncomfortable stuff can come up. Yeah? Stuff that's been waiting for our attention for ages, yeah? while we've been busy making other plans, yeah? as it were. So, and of course, if we were to give up then, because there were some uncomfortable emotions coming up, and join most of the rest of society <laughs> distracting ourselves, yeah, then we'll miss out on a golden opportunity yeah? to start you know, very, very carefully, you know, very, very intelligently, as it were, letting this stuff uh, into our kindly awareness, yeah? Because I think if we want to lead a more authentic life, you know, if we want to taste what peace really is, yeah, what contentment really is, what integration really is, what positive emotion really is, you know, this is what we need to do. We need to be able to let these things in. And, um, well, the just sitting practice is a tremendously good practice for doing this, yeah? And just sitting, doing nothing at home with a cup of tea uh, as well. Just stopping for some time. It's a very, very good way of letting this stuff in gently, yeah? And the more we do this, the more able we are just to be with it because it really is never as bad as we thought. Uh, or, so, well, actually, I better have a carve out there, I think. Maybe 99%, it's not as bad as we thought. <laughs> yeah? Um, we had this lovely quote from Rumi, uh, which I really loved last week. Don't turn away, keep your gaze on the bandaged place. That's where the light enters you. Yeah. So, I suppose when I was thinking about this talk, I was thinking, well, crikey, you know, if we really put this all, all this stuff into practice, yeah, if we test out the Dharma, if we learn to think for ourselves yeah, and try and put this into practice, we slow down and try and become more receptive and then if we let our exper experience yeah, whether pleasant painful or otherwise into a kindly awareness you know if we could do this more and more and more well you know this would be really great we'd be making real progress wouldn't we I think uh, on our dharmic practice 
And I'm sure most of us in this room, and I really, really include myself here, <laughs> yeah, I'm sure we've got a lot of work to do, you know, still in this area, really, you know. This is the sort of digging work of the Dharma. In a way, we're not going to experience the real fruits until we do this digging work, really. Yeah? If we can do this, then, well, we would develop a really good level, I think, of tranquility uh, in our practice. So, I want to talk a little bit about the two stages here uh, on our system of meditation diagram. And I'm just going to put a line in the middle there. I really wish I had a red pen, but I don't. So, we're going to call this stage the stage of Samatha. And then this stage, Vipassana. It's not very clear that, I'm afraid, but there's not a lot of room left. Yeah? So really, throughout this series, what we've been concentrating on is this stage. Yeah, the stage of Samatha. Now, if we could really, really take the advice, I think, of the first three talks... I think we'd really, really be ready to move more on to this stage uh, of Vipassana. Yeah? So I'm going to explain these two words in a minute. And then we're going to spend the rest of the night just having a look at what Vipassana might be. What, what might insight be? So, so firstly, Samatha. Yeah, Samatha's it's a, it's a word that you probably hear around quite a bit. Yeah, Samadhi's another one. Uh, and well, of course, Samatha refers to, in a way... This stage of practice, yeah, of integration, of awareness, of positive emotion. And it's interesting, the Pali word, samatha, um, which has got another, another T and another M in it, but I think it's the same word. It means swept clean or polished. Yeah, swept clean of what, I wonder? Polished of what? We're going to go into that in a second. And um, the 6th century Chinese Buddhist Chai Yi, or Chu Yi, I'm never quite sure how to pronounce it, very, very famous Buddhist and the writer of a great work called Dhyana for Beginners. He says, Samatha is a refreshment of the lower consciousness. Yeah? And it's also an entrance into the wonderful silence and peacefulness of potentiality. That sounds very nice, doesn't it? It's nice the way he said that. So, so this is samatha, this is sweeping the mind clean of something, yeah? entering into a silence, yeah? refreshment of the lower consciousness. Yeah? In a way, these stages, are, samatha is leading up to the dhyanas, yeah? these stages of the higher, higher stages of consciousness. And then vipassana, in a way, when we've kind of cleared the mind of its clutter, yeah? it's ready to see things as they really are. Yeah? It's as simple as that, really. So, vipassana means insight, again, purified and clean. But um, I think, interestingly, in terms of this talk, vipassana, yeah, so you've got the first two letters, vi, that means very, it's an emphatic. Yeah? Now, pa means out. And then sati, which I think is where that comes from, it means to be aware or to see. So, what it means is it means very to see out yeah or to really see out yeah not in a fake way not in a deluded way but to really see yeah so that's what vipassana means so when the mind is clear and swept free yeah we can really see yeah to use a common phrase we can really really see the way things are yeah this is the spade work as it were that we're doing in this practice and I often use the image of this kind of, of the lake and the sky. Yeah? If the lake's ruffled, it can't reflect the sky. It's a very, very distorted reflection on the water's surface, isn't it? Whereas if a lake's perfectly still, it just reflects it as it is. Yeah? So the question is, yeah, why don't we normally see things the way they are? And uh, I suppose for this, I just wanted to do a little diagram really here. So... Yeah, on the one side, ideally this would be the other way up, but it's not, so there you go. So it's a little bit narrow, but on the one side, this is us. Yeah, that's our eye. Not very good at art, I'm afraid. That's about as good as it gets. Yeah, and then on this side, now let me just make sure that I spell this right. Tatata. 
So what does this mean? Yeah, this means suchness. Yeah, it means reality, basically. Yeah. So we've got us trying to kind of look and to see reality. We've got reality over here, but the problem is is that we've got a load of other stuff in the way. Yeah. So according to Buddhism, according to the Buddha, we've got this basic delusion. of a separate self. Yeah, I'll go into this a little bit tonight. I don't want to go into it too much because it can get a little bit headbangery and I don't want it to become like that. Uh, We've got all of our views. Prejudices. Yeah, we've got our likes. Dislikes. Craving. And aversion. We've got all of our conditioning, uh, in short. Yeah? Whether kind of genetic or stuff that's (coughs) happened in our lives or whatever, yeah? All these things affect how we see reality. So in a way, there's a lot getting in the way, isn't there, of, uh, of this? Yeah? So... In a way, all this boils down to another word that I'm wondering if you've heard of. Yeah? I think this is the last word I'm going to be introducing tonight, yeah? so we're not going to get too bad. Sajananda talked about it a little bit while he was here. Yeah? All this boils down to this, yeah? propancha. So all of these things are propancha. So, um, so what's propancha? Let's, well, let's have a little definition of this first of all. Um, there's three ways that it's described uh, in the Sanskrit dictionary. Yeah? Propancha means obstacle, yeah? impediment. I quite like this, this is very good. A burden which causes delay. Yeah? All these things are a burden which causes delay. The second main meaning is illusion, obsession or hindrance to spiritual progress. Yeah? And the third one, which I like the most, is ludicrous dialogue. <laughs> I really, really like that, yeah? So, and we'll have a look at this in more depth here. What stands in the way of us really, really seeing things the way that they are is this ludicrous dialogue in our heads. <laughs> yeah? The emotions arising out of that dialogue. And thirdly, the fact that we relate to all this as me. Yeah? This is the issue. Yeah, and I know we're going a little bit ahead tonight, but I think it's very, very useful to look ahead, as it were. What's happening higher up the mountain, as it were? Because we can adjust what we're doing from the kind of glimpses ahead. Yeah? So I'm going to try and keep things as simple as possible tonight. And my kind of idea behind it is to give you, as it were, a sniff of what might be ahead. Yeah? Some of the, uh, the Buddhist schools, such as the Dzogchen, they start off with the view, which is interesting, isn't it? They start off with the enlightened view. They tell you that, and then you work out the rest, as it were, and you try and get up to that. So I think it's good to go ahead sometimes. This is why I've done this this evening. So, so basically, the reason that we're not seeing things the way that they are is because we get caught up in propensia, and we base our lives on that. We think that's what we are. This delusion of a separate self, the views, in a way, all the thoughts that are rushing around our heads the emotions that they're generating. We build an identity out of this. So Eckhart Tolle is very, very good on this stuff. He's hot uh, on this stuff. In fact, his whole book is generated on this, this same idea, really, just different ways of looking at it. What he says is, he says, most people are so completely identified with the voice in the head, the incessant stream of involuntary and compulsive thinking, and the emotions accompanying it that they are literally possessed by their own mind. So anyway, we're not being hard on ourselves tonight for doing this. Everybody does it. Yeah, everybody does it. But I think it's really useful to bring that into a kindly awareness. Yeah? Because until we really, really see it, we are, as Eckhart Tolle says, spiritually unconscious. Yeah? So we're going to be trying to get spiritually conscious tonight. So the question is, is well, you know, why on earth shouldn't we identify with, the, with these thoughts in our head, yeah? with the voice in our head and those emotions? You know, this sense of me. 
yeah, at the centre of this kind of unfolding experience that we call life. Why on earth wouldn't we do that? Descartes said, I think, therefore I am, didn't he? You know, in a way, he's kind of like the bedrock of, of modern Western philosophy, isn't he? I think, therefore I am. Though that's been thoroughly deconstructed now uh, in Western philosophy. If we're not all this propantia, yeah, these thoughts and these emotions and that, if we're not all this propantia, then what are we? Yeah. So to look at this, what I'd like to do is I'd like to call on an old friend, uh, which is Bahia of the Bark Garment. And I'd like to have a look at a story yeah, from the Udana. Yeah, one of my favourite bits of the Pali Canon, actually, There's some cracking stories in the Udana. And uh, it's called the Udana, by the way, because, well, apparently the Buddha, I don't know what it's like to be enlightened, but I imagine it's pretty cosmic. And occasionally what would happen is, is that the Buddha would see something. He'd see something happening out there in the world and he would be full of inspiration. It would be like a really good example of the Dharma, the way the universe worked or something like that. And apparently he'd just come out with a verse. He'd come out with what's called an inspired utterance and that's what Indana means. Udana means literally a breathing out. Yeah, And... This is a collection of, in a sense, the stories that inspired those Udanas. Now, I'm a little bit dubious as to whether they've got all the stories mixed with the right Udanas, but um, anyway, scepticism aside, it's very worth reading. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the story out. I'm going to read most of it out. It carries on, yeah? And I'm going to be rather naughty and give the ending away here. Unfortunately, Bahia gets killed at the end of this. He gets killed by a runaway cow. Yeah. and <laughs> then the Buddha gives his Udana at the end. But I'm not going to go into that because our need to go into that is, is very little, actually. We're going to stop just before that with one of the pithy teachings. But you can go away and read this. It's in the first chapter, and it's the tenth story. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read a paragraph, and then if I need to explain anything, I'll just go back and I'll explain it. Thus have I heard. At one time the Lord was staying near Sarvati, in the Jetta Wood at Anar, I can always find this difficult to pronounce, at Anar Tapindika's monastery. At that time, Bahia of the Bark Cloth was living by the seashore in Suparaka. He was respected, revered, honoured, venerated, and given homage, and was one who obtained the requisites of robes, arm food, lodgings, and medicines. Yeah? So the story starts off, thus have I heard. Yeah? So who's heard? Yeah? The person that's heard this is probably Ananda, one of Buddha's disciples. Yeah? All the stories in the Pali Canon start off, thus have I heard. Because yeah? after the Buddha died, all the disciples got together and they told the stories of the Buddha's life. Yeah? So this is one of the stories that was kept in that way. So the, the Buddha was staying at Sarvati in Anatta Pindika's monastery, which I visited. Uh, in India. It's a really lovely place. And apparently the Buddha stayed uh, 24 rainy seasons there after his enlightenment. It was so lovely. He'd stay there while the monsoons were on. So we meet the character of Bahia of the Bark Cloth. Yeah, it sounds a bit strange, doesn't it? Bark Cloth. I don't think we're supposed to uh, take it literally that he was wearing a whole load of kind of cloppy bath, bark stuff. Um, Actually, in those times, they would weave quite kind of intricate things out of, out of bark. Yeah? And um, actually, kind of priests, often religious priests, would wear bark so they didn't have to wear animal products. Yeah? So this place where Bahia is is called Superaka. And uh, it's a recently, in the last century, uh, excavated part uh, of north of Bombay on the coast. Yeah? So it actually exists. And... Um, it was a very, very important trading town for Babylonia. So Bahia, which actually means outsider or foreigner, yeah, was probably from Babylonia, maybe Greece, something like that, one of the trading ports there. So anyway, to continue. Now, while he was in seclusion, this reflection arose in the mind of Bahia of the bark cloth. Am I one of those in the world who are Arahants or who have entered the path of Arahantship? Then a devatar, yeah, who was a former blood relation of Bahir of the bark cloth, 
understood this reflection in his mind. Being compassionate and wishing to benefit him, he approached Bahir and said, You, Bahir, are neither an Arahant nor have you entered the path of Arahantship. You do not follow that practice whereby you could become an Arahant or enter the path of Arahantship. Yeah. So Bahir, he's on his own and he's reflecting. And I think we can take it as read that he was, didn't really say, am I an Arahant? Yeah. An Arahant was a specific term to Buddhism. And Suparaka is over a thousand miles away from where the Buddha ever taught. Yeah. So he's probably just reflecting on something like, you know, is my practice getting me anywhere? I'm getting all this worship from the locals and things like that. But have I really, really, have I really, really broken through? Am I really awake? Yeah. And then we get this rather strange thing, don't we? We get like a devatar, which I think is a female god, goddess, a devatar, appearing in the mind of Bahia. So we don't quite know what to make of that. You know, we could take it literally. It could literally be a god or a goddess. You know, maybe these days we just don't notice these things. Who knows? Yeah, it could be perhaps that they consulted an oracle, which was very, very popular uh, in those days. Yeah, or something like this. You know, it's interesting if you read the Iliad um, or the Odyssey, the Greeks are forever thinking that some god has given them some inspiration in their head, which is very interesting, isn't it? There are some theories around where um, people think that it was the beginning in those days of self-consciousness. It was sort of still not quite emerged fully uh, in those days, so that people actually experienced things as being outside yeah, themselves. If they had a really, really good thought, they didn't think it had come from them. I don't know what to make of all that, but it's very, very interesting, isn't it? So however we take that, Bahir's got some advice, and it said that his practice isn't going as well as he'd hoped. Yeah? So Bahia says, well, then in the world, including the devas, who are arahants or have entered the path of arahantship? Yeah, so who, who, who is an arahant? Yeah? So this voice, whatever it is, continues. There is Bahir in a far country, a town called Sarvati. Yeah, there's an arahant there. There the Lord lives who is an arahant, the fully enlightened one. That Lord Bahir is indeed an arahant. And he teaches Dhamma for the realisation <coughs> of Arahantship. So the Devatar there is very careful to get the message across, isn't, he? <laughs> isn't she? Repeats Arahant about five or six times. Then Bahir of the bark cloth, profoundly stirred by the words of that Devatar, then and there departed from Suparaka, stopping for only one night everywhere along the way. Yeah, and this is about a thousand miles on foot. Yeah, Land's End, John O'Groats. Yeah? stopping for only one night along the way. He went to Sarvati where the Lord was staying in the Jetar wood at Anarta Pindaka's monastery. At the monastery, we'll just say from now on, I think. Yeah? At that time, a number of bhikkhus were walking up and down in the open air, and it's such a lovely place, it really is. Then Bahir of the bark cloth approached those bhikkhus and said, Where, revered sirs, is the Lord now living? The Arahant, the fully enlightened one. We wish to see that Lord the Arahant, the fully enlightened one. You have to excuse all the repetition in this, by the way. This has come down from an oral tradition. So they'd say things in very kind of formulaic ways to help the memory. Sometimes it makes a little bit sort of dense, repetitive reading. Hopefully we're going to get the kind of spirit out of the story too. So anyway, these bhikkhus reply, the Lord Bahir has gone for alms food amongst the houses. Then Bahir hurriedly left the Jetta wood, Entering Sarvati, he saw the Lord walking for Armsford in Sarvati. Pleasing, lovely to see, with calm senses and tranquil mind, attained to perfect poise and calm, controlled, a perfected one, watching with restrained senses. So this is Bahir's first impression uh, of the Buddha. Obviously a lot of Shraddha flowing out of his heart immediately just by seeing him. On seeing the Lord, he approached, fell down with his head at the Lord's feet and said, Teach me Dharma, Lord, teach me Dharma, Sugata, so that it will be for my good and happiness for a long time. Upon being spoken to thus, the Lord said to Bahir of the bark cloth, Imagine this. It is an unsuitable time, Bahir. We have entered among the houses for alms food. Yeah, so I think generally if the Buddha was doing one thing, he'd prefer to kind of finish it before he went and did another thing. So he asks Bahir to wait. But Bahir is not up for it and he asks him a second time. He says, 
It is difficult to know for certain, revered sir, how long the Lord will live or how long I will live. Which is a bit of a premonition because it's not very long, I'm afraid, for Bahia. (laughs) (laughs) Teach me Dharma, Lord. Teach me Dharma. A second time the Lord said to to Bahia, it's an unsuitable time, Bahia. We've entered among the houses for arm food. Oh, he is not going to be put off. The third time he said to the Lord, it's difficult to know for certain how long we'll live. Teach me Dharma, Sugata, so that it will be for my good and happiness for a long time. Well, if you ask the Buddha three things, if you ask the Buddha, sorry, three times, he's going to reply, even if it's for your own good or not. I mean, fortunately, this time it is for Bahia's good. But the teaching that he gives, not everybody would get. Yes, you might be a little bit disappointed when you hear this, Don't worry, I'm going to try and unpack this uh, in a minute. So what would you do if somebody said this to you? So, the Buddha decides to give Bahir a teaching. And you can be pretty sure when the Buddha gives a teaching, he sussed the person out beforehand. Seems to have an uncanny knack in the Pali Canon of knowing what teachings people need. Though he did make mistakes at times as well. But he gets it right with Bahir. So what does he say? He says... Herein, Bahia, you should train yourself thus. In the scene will merely be what is seen. And you might remember this from the meditation practice. In the heard will be merely what is heard. In the sensed will be merely what is sensed. In the cognized will be merely what is cognized. So cognized isn't a word that's bandied around the pub a lot these days, is it? Yeah, what it really means is it means it means to know. In a way, what it means is what you know or are aware of through the senses. Yeah. So whatever you are aware of or know through the senses, just let them be like that. Yeah, don't add on to them. In this way, you should train yourself, bar here. There's one more thing. When bar here for you in the scene is merely what is seen, etc. Yeah. In the heard, what is heard. In the cognized, what is cognized. Then, bar here, you will not be with that. So we'll go into that in a minute. When, bar here, you are not with that. Then, bar here, you will not be in that. When, bar here, you are not in that. Then you'll be neither here nor beyond, nor in between the two. So all that's a little bit ethereal, but the next sentence isn't, is it? Yeah? Just this is the end of suffering. Yeah? So whatever is in that pithy statement is the end of suffering. Just that. Now through this brief Dharma teaching of the Lord, the mind of Bahia, of the bark cloth, was immediately freed from the taints without grasping. And he went away. Yeah? So I'm wondering, is anybody else in the room freed without the taints without grasping? <laughs> Maybe it came across easier in Pali, we don't know, but... Um, Let's have a little look at what all this means. So, I've got five things here, and I'm afraid, again, the writing's not very, very good. I want to examine this pithy extraction just for a little bit. We're not going to go into it too much. What the Buddha's saying, really, the pith of this, really, is instead of getting immersed and caught up in this ludicrous dialogue that goes on in our heads, we should train ourselves thus. Yeah? So basically, the first kind of proposition here is, in the seen, the heard, the sensed, yeah? this includes the thoughts, of course. Yeah? Buddhism uh, includes the six senses, the five external ones and the thoughts as well. Yeah? Whatever's going on yeah, in the senses, yeah? just be aware of, yeah? just be aware of that. Yeah? Just try and let it be. Yeah? Just be mindful of whatever arises. Just open up to it. Yeah? And this is the really, really tricky bit. Yeah? And if we do this, there's no point in beating yourself up because it's really, really human. Like everybody does it. But Buddhism is the way out of it. Yeah? Without adding stuff onto it. So in the cognized will be merely what is cognized. Yeah? In whatever comes up in awareness, we'll just leave it at that. So, what he then says is, he says, well, when this occurs, you'll not be with that. So, what the heck does this mean, with that? What does it mean? Well, it means you won't be caught up in all the propansha. 
all the thoughts and the views. Yeah? When you can just rest in your awareness, when you can be really, really mindful, you're not up in your head, lost in your head. Yeah? You're here, you're just with whatever's real. You're not caught up in all the extra speculation, the hypothesizing, the judgments. Oh, they've come into this room, they're doing this probably, or you know, whatever it is that we do. The interpretations, the projections. In short, all the noise, as it were, that we add in our heads. Yeah. So why is this a problem? Well, it's a problem. It's a problem because all this stuff really, in the way of the tatata, in the way of things how they really are, they arise from the ego. Yeah? This is the issue. So Excuse me. I'm a few years off a PowerPoint presentation, I think. Uh, <laughs> not as crinkly, though, are they? So, when you're not with that, you're not in that. Yeah? Again, we'd probably be a little bit lost there, wouldn't we? What he's saying is when you're not in that, i.e. thinking all these thoughts, emoting, yeah, thinking that this is me, uh, in a way, then you'll not be with that. Yeah? You'll not be in that. You'll not just be immersed uh, in all of that, yeah? lost in it. Yeah? So when you're not with that, i.e. identified with all the stories of the ego, yeah? you will not be in that, i.e. immersed in the ego. You will not be in the ego, as it were. You will not be coming from the kind of ego side of yourself. Yeah? You will not base your identity on that. You will not think this is me. Yeah. So the last one is, when you're not in that, you are neither here nor beyond nor between the two. So what does this mean? Well, it's quite simply, you don't need to sort of go into it that much. It's, it's you're just here. Yeah, you're just resting in what is. You haven't gone off into a fantasy world yeah, of thoughts and speculations and what might be. You're really here. You're really practicing the pinnacle of mindfulness when you're doing that. Yeah. In fact, you're resting probably in this sort of deeper awareness that we are, yeah? our intrinsic awareness. What we really are beneath the delusions thrown up by this ludicrous dialogue. Yeah? So you're neither kind of like here nor beyond nor between the two. You're not comparing, you're not splitting things up, you're not creating false dualities, you're just here. Yeah? So basically, what the Buddha's saying is, we've got this sort of two ways of being, really. Um, whenever we identify with our thoughts and emotions and create a fixed self out of that, yeah, and it's so easy to do. It's, it's our kind of autopilot. Yeah, we have thoughts going on in our heads, don't we? We have emotions going. We get caught up in them. We have a thought, and we, it's a bit like, if, we thi- if a thought comes in our head, they're out of order for doing that. We believe it's real. You know, we, be- we believe that a me has thought that, yeah? And all the emotions that arise, we start believing in that and we get all tight and we limit ourselves, yeah? This is what we're trying not to do, yeah? Because when we do that, we're keeping our karma alive, we're keeping our egos alive. So that's the one way of doing things. And what the Buddha's trying to advocate is trying to advocate, why don't we rest in our awareness, yeah? And be without, without adding unnecessary stuff from the ego, yeah? Just this is the end of suffering. While we're caught up with this propensia and the emotions that it generates, we'll suffer, yeah? We'll suffer because it's coming from the ego. If we can just rest in awareness and let all that be, as it were, we won't suffer, yeah? That's what causes suffering. So, I'm just going to get on to the last few bits now. Um... But I mean, basically, the whole idea between, behind this sort of more vipassana meditation, this insight meditation, this really seeing things as they are meditation, is that the propantia that we identify with, this dialogue in our head, these fleeting thoughts and emotions, yeah, all they are is that. They're fleeting thoughts, bundles of emotions. They're memories we identify with as me and my story yeah, from the past. They're habitual roles we play, perhaps without knowing. Yeah? The ego 
is just a series of personal identifications, yeah, with possessions, with views, opinions, external appearances that we relate to, long-standing resentments, comparisons with others. It's all just thoughts. It really is all just thoughts. And then collective identifications with gender roles, with nationality, race, religion, class, etc. Yeah? When we do Vipassana meditation, when we look at what we think of as a fixed self, we just see it as something really ephemeral. But the problem is, is that because the ego, in a sense, kind of knows this somewhere deep down, yeah, it can't rest secure. Yeah? It's constantly struggling for survival. And it does this by churning out incessant thoughts. A continuous story that keeps on saying, hey, I'm a me, I'm a me, I'm a me. This is what thoughts do. And even if the thoughts aren't about me, you know, even the thoughts are about something completely neutral. Because we're having thoughts, we think, oh yeah, I am having thoughts. Yeah, this is what thoughts do. Yeah, to keep this sense of me alive. Yeah. And one of the ways that it does this by, is by creating a false boundary between what we really are, which is our intrinsic awareness, which is the awareness that thoughts and that appear in, actually. That's what we really are. But what we do is we create a fixed self and we create others. And we create a rigid wall between. This is how the ego stays alive. And, of course, craving and aversion uh, arise from this. So, basically, what the Buddha is saying is, while we are caught up in this game, we're going to suffer. And what the Buddha is doing in this sutta, yeah, is he's asking Bar here to step back from that. Yeah? Step back from that process, which is an incredibly, incredibly hard thing to do. And we're not, going to, we're not going to even get anywhere near it until we've got the samatha part of our meditation practice sorted. Yeah? Remember, the word for samatha was to sweep clean. In a way, we can't start to see this kind of intrinsic luminous awareness that is what we really are in our depths until we, as it were, get rid of some of the clutter. Yeah? So he's asking Bar here to step back from this process. Yeah? Begin bringing his attention to the awareness behind all that. Yeah? Where does all this arise in? This sort of sense of presence in the background. Yeah? So this is what Vipassana meditation uh, is all about. Yeah. So this awareness, this presence, yeah, this primordial knowing, whatever it is, this luminosity of mind, you know, this is what the Buddha is saying, this is what we are truly. Yeah? This is the sort of the eternal, as it were, what we are. Not the ephemeral and painful froth churned up by the ego, which is what we normally <coughs> identify with. Yeah? So if we can really, really see this, we can really, really start to see things as the way they are. So by doing this, yeah, by obviously Bar here is just on the cusp of seeing this anyway, and there's something about what the Buddha says that points him in that direction. So he gains enlightenment. Yeah? He enters into this intrinsic awareness and he cuts the identification with all this propensity this ludicrous dialogue in the head. So, when he's doing this, he's creating no further karma. Yeah? Karma, all karma is in a way, is whenever we act from the ego, from a sense of, oh, I'm separate to everybody. That's what karma is. Yeah? So anyway, in a way, just had a little bit of a stab at what that might be like. But of course, it's really, really, you know, it's impossible actually to describe that. When we're talking about things about enlightenment or, or pure awareness or intrinsic awareness or anything like that, you know, in a way I use this analogy often between the food and the menu. Yeah, in a way, all I can do is I can sort of say what's on the menu, as it were. But like tasting it is a completely different story. Yeah? So in a way, we've just had a few pointers from the menu of what that pure awareness might be like. But what I'd like to do is just finish off briefly with, well, what are the ramifications for our life? Yeah? We've gone all the way to the view there. We've sort of looked at some of the sort of more lofty ideas behind this just being with awareness thing, which is very easy to talk about, but very hard to do. You know, I'm wondering when we did the meditation earlier on, did anybody kind of manage to even separate themselves from their thoughts enough, you know, just to be with them? You know, I mean, if you did, a very interesting reflection to consider is, is how can I be my thoughts when I'm watching them? 
Yeah, we base our lives thinking that our thoughts are ours, but how can they be me when they're the object of our experience? Surely we're whatever is taking the thoughts in. You can't be something that you watch. Yeah, it doesn't work, does it? Anyway, enough headbanging. Yeah? So let's get practical now, just to finish off, last five minutes or so. So a couple of warnings, first of all, about the Bahir Sutta, yeah? Bahir, you know, the Buddha's not saying that all thinking is problematical. Obviously, we need to engage in functional thinking, don't we? It's a bit like if we need to get the bus, we need to have a think, well, where's the timetable? Ring them up. What's the bus number? Where does it go from? How can I get there? Yeah? There's not a problem with thinking. Functional thinking's fine. But as Eckhart Tolle so ably demonstrates in his book, it's all gone out of control. You know, when we can't control our own thoughts, it's not making life great, is it, actually? Not when you really, really taste the peace from that uh, in meditation. Yeah? Until you've tasted that, you might think, well, you know, it's all right. My thoughts are all right. You know, what's the problem? But when you've really, really tasted peace, it's very unsatisfactory having a mind that does that. Yeah? Believe me. So we need functional thinking to do things like that. Yeah? And, you know, of course, if we drift into unnecessary thinking while we're doing something, well, we're just aware of that. Yeah? If we start having a go at ourselves, then we're just, we're just it's more propensure, isn't it, in a way? Yeah? So we're just aware. Yeah? Ideally, we have a think about when to get the bus, etc., and then we stop. Yeah? And we just go back into a, a sense of nice, peaceful mind. Yeah? This is the goal of the Dharma, yeah, and probably we're most of us in this room are quite far away from that, yeah. So we practice mindfulness, yeah. If we drift off into thoughts, into a sort of fantasy world, we're just aware of that, and we come back. It's very, very easy, yeah. It's very, very easy to practice, yeah, just to try. Whether we master it or not, it's a different story. So this is mindfulness only, yeah. Whatever you do, just do it. So just walk. Just sit down, just do your job at work, just talk to somebody and then let go of thinking when you don't need to do it anymore. Yeah? So the second warning is this doesn't mean that you turn into a zombie uh, as well. Yeah? I'm the scene, only the scene, in the thought, you know. Yeah? It's not an alienated awareness. Yeah? We're not looking at stuff from the outside through a kind of telescope the wrong way round. Yeah? It's not a kind of scientific experiment. Yeah, if we're really in touch with our awareness, with our presence, yeah, if we've really kind of woken up from the tyranny of compulsive thinking, then we should really be able to fully engage with life. Yeah, we could really be with life as it unfolds. Because we're not caught up in our personal stories anymore. Yeah? We're more open to others, etc. So, of course, this experience of pure awareness, it's really elusive in the beginning stages of the practice. But I'd like to point out that sometimes you might be experiencing it without realising. Yeah? So I'm wondering who in this room has done a puja or done a lot of chanting and then when the chanting stopped has had, albeit maybe for a few seconds or a little bit longer, just a sense of the mind being surprisingly alive and at rest. Yeah, I mean, I've had that experience a load of times. It's not rocket science. Um, it, you know, at the end of a meditation, we can taste, if we do some just sitting practice, we can taste that. We can taste it here and now, actually. You know, it isn't something that's sort of off on another planet somewhere. We have tastes of it. The problem is, is that when we get stressed out or when we get busy and things like that, we can't maintain that. We have glimpses. So the whole of the Buddhist practice is about making that more and more of your life. So we can encourage a sort of ever-deepening experience of this kind of pure awareness by, well, firstly, by practising mindfulness yeah, in our everyday lives, trying to do things slowly and with awareness. This is why mindfulness is so, 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 so important. And, you know, Bodhi in, in the series in September is going to be really taking apart mindfulness. What does it mean? So, you know, I'd really encourage you to come on that because... I do think, you know, it's my observation that mindfulness is something that we could do a lot better uh, in this movement. Very, very good at metta and friendliness and things like that, but mindfulness, we need to practice it more and more. We can encourage this sort of experience of pure awareness by slowing down more yeah, and being mindful. Um, 
we can also investigate thoughts a little bit more rather than just getting caught up in them and thinking, oh, they're just something that happens. Ooh, clock nearly fell off then. Uh, we can have a look at them. Yeah? What are thoughts? Yeah, at the end of a meditation, while when we've done a bit of just sitting, we can ask, well, are thoughts me? If I'm watching thoughts, how can they be me, etc.? Yeah, something might open up if you do that. What am I at my deepest? Is it this kind of froth that goes around my mind yeah, and the emotions that that generates? And, well, you know, if we can start seeing that they're not what we really are, yeah, then we can let them go. Another good practice around this is if you have a really, really strong view about something. If somebody's saying something and you find yourself getting really, really irate, yeah, well, there's a few nods in the audience there, yeah. Well, where does this view come from? Yeah, who's having this view? It's just a load of thoughts, isn't it? How do I know that it's really, really true? Yeah. So we can sit in the space a little bit more with these thoughts. Again, very, very difficult. The more annoyed you are, the harder to do. So the last thing is to remember to do the just sitting practice. Yeah, Because the just sitting practice, we have an ideal opportunity when we do nothing just to sit and watch the mind at play. Yeah? If we really, really get into this after a while, you know, and I would recommend doing quite a few years of the Bhavna practices first, if we really find that we're engaged with this, well, we can have a look at what the Pure Awareness practice is. Uh, maybe go on a retreat at Badraloka uh, on the Pure Awareness practice. Because I think when we start to kind of do this more and more, what happens is when you begin just sitting or doing the Pure Awareness practice, it's a little bit like one of those snowstorm paperweights. Yeah, I'm just going to finish with this image, really. Yeah, you've got one of those snowstorm paperweights, and it's like everything's just everywhere. It's flying around everywhere. This is the mind. Yeah. So when we start off doing these practices, what happens is, is well, probably 99.9% of our identification is with the thoughts, yeah, as me, with the emotions as me, as a fixed self. And maybe 0.01% of our identification is with the awareness in which it takes place. This is how it starts. Yeah? But gradually what we do is we sit more and more, the snowstorm, as it were, begins to settle. Yeah? And that balance shifts. You know, we might even get to the point one day where we're kind of 50% identified with that awareness. Yeah? And 50% identified with the thoughts. And we might even have sort of experiences where our identification with the thoughts, etc., just goes. And we're just there with awareness. Yeah? You can have glimpses. This is what the Zen calls Satori experiences. Yeah? Experiences of flashes of insight. Yeah? So this is really all what the practice is. And if we can do this you know, in our just sitting practice, oh for a PowerPoint. Where's my eye? Oh yeah, here we are. You know, basically what we're doing with the just sitting practice, and this is the last comment of the night, really. Yeah, what happens is, is as we sit here, yeah, we've got tatata there, we've got reality there, and we've got all these things here in the way. What happens is, is they start to unwind. Yeah, as our awareness becomes more and more clear, yeah, we start to see through those as just stories. Yeah, this is what happens. We start to see through them. Certain views will go. We see certain likes and dislikes. Somebody might be making a noise in the shrine room and there's a little bit that goes, maybe they shouldn't be doing that. And if you're really, really aware, you just see that as just a manifestation of the ego. It's not you. There's no need to get worried that you've had that thought. Yeah, there's a tremendous freedom in this. Whatever thoughts go through our minds, all they are really is just a product of cultural conditioning. They're echoes of what our mum used to teach us, what our teachers used to teach us, opinions we've read in books, etc., etc., yeah, what we really are underneath that is much more original. Yeah? We need to find that out. And basically, right at the end, at the bottom here, you know, and under the Bodhi tree, this was the last thing to go for the Buddha, wasn't it? It's this sense of a separate self. You know? And when this finally goes, yeah, well, all this is gone. And then there's no gap between this yeah, tatata and what we are. Yeah? So this is the function, really. Um, of vipassana meditation. Yeah? When these go, we can really see things as they really are. Yeah? 
So anyway, that's that for tonight, and that's that for the series. And I, I would direct you towards um, the Udana. Uh, remember, it's the first story, chapter 10. You can find out what the sad ending was. Uh, but then, like, then the Buddha, feeling really inspired about Bahia and how he responded to the Dharma as well, so it's not an unhappy ending at all. So what we'll do is we'll head downstairs for 20 minutes or so, and then we'll come up and we'll have a final activity. Um, probably go on to about 20 to 10 uh, tonight. So anyway, thanks very much for coming on the series, and uh, I do hope you enjoy Mahabodhi's series in September on mindfulness. Very important. Thanks.